Thanks for checking out this video. My name's Kiara, and I hope you enjoy this message from Redemption Church. Hi, my name's Stephen. I have bad timing. Okay. All right. Hey, welcome to Redemption. Uh, so glad you're here. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Luke chapter 8 this morning. Uh, we're continuing on in our series, Summer Camp. And if you're new around here, let me tell you what Summer Camp's all about. It's taking us back for many of us to those nostalgic days of camp. And there are a couple of things about camp. First, camp was always fun. And it's a reminder to us that church is allowed to be fun. You know, I was like 17 years old before I knew that that was like a reality or possible. It's not because I'd never been in church, it just was never fun. And then at like 17, I discovered church is allowed to be fun. And then a couple of years later, I decided I was going to go into ministry and I made this commitment. If I'm ever a part of a church leadership team, I want to make sure that it's a church that people realize it's allowed to be fun. Because here's interesting. When you think about church and your experience with it, especially as a kid, often your perception of church becomes your perception of God. And so then God becomes no fun. And then God becomes something that we always have to be so serious about. But then when you see church, and by the way, church in the scriptures, um, church in the scriptures, there's very little about how we actually or what we actually have to do in church. I'll go this far. I think 95% of what church is to us are traditions that we've created, not God. Which means there's pretty much an uh, open page to what Sunday morning is allowed to look like. And so camp was about starting a, uh, starting a summer of saying, let's just have some fun on Sunday mornings. And then the other thing that happened at camp is you make friends and you meet Jesus. More spiritual way of saying that is church community and growing in your faith. And so uh, after we sing and all of that, we get to this part of the service where we open up the scriptures and we let God speak to us through his holy word. And so that's what we're doing this morning. We're in Luke chapter 8. We've been teaching through the gospel of Luke all summer. And in this particular story, we're going to see two stories in one story. And what we're going to see in this story, uh, let me give you kind of the outline from the beginning, two differences in the types of people who receive miracles, two similarities in the types of people who receive miracles, two things about how Jesus produces them, and one instruction at the end. That's what we'll see this morning. So let's set up the story. Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 40. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him. For they were all waiting for him. Now this is probably a welcome change for Jesus. So often he'd been showing up to places and he wasn't always getting the warmest of receptions. Now they're actually eagerly awaiting for Jesus to show up. Last week I taught the passage before this. And what occurs is Jesus crosses over the Sea of Galilee for the first time in his ministry. Bringing the gospel into the land of the Gentiles. And when he gets there, he's met by this dude named Legion because he has so many demons in him. Jesus sends the demons into the pigs. They get angry. Jesus gets back in the boat and he crosses back over in the sea to the other side. And he lands at the beginning of this story. And so when he lands, everyone's there, the crowds are around him, and we meet our first, we'll call him character, even though he's a real human being, our first character. And there came a man named Jairus, or Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. He's going to be our first character, our second character, and it's going to be an unnamed woman. We'll get to her in a second, but understanding who Jairus is teaches us the first difference that exists in the type of people who receive miracles. And the difference is in who they are. 
Jairus is a, a named man in the story. He's called the ruler of the synagogue. That means he's like the director or the lead pastor of the synagogue. He got to pick the music. He got to pick who was speaking, what scripture was going to be read. He was in charge of the synagogue. Now, this particular synagogue is the synagogue that we've talked about frequently thus far in our series. Uh, a demon was cast out in, of a man in this synagogue. And another interesting story, it's the known most popularly as the faith of the Roman centurion. In the story of the Roman centurion, uh, we're told about this guy, uh, the Roman centurion, who built the synagogue. Well, what synagogue? Jairus's synagogue. And the Roman centurion sent some Jewish leaders on his behalf to intercede. More than likely, Jairus was one of those men who went and interceded on behalf of the Roman centurion. So more than likely, uh, not in name, Jairus has already been a part of our story. And his synagogue has uh, been a big part of our story thus far. So Jairus, who has seen miracle after miracle happen in his synagogue. Now, needs a miracle of his own. We'll get to what that is in a moment. So here's our first guy. He's a religious, intellectual, powerful, uh, connected ruler of the synagogue, given a name in the story. A few verses later, we're going to meet our second character. She's an unnamed woman. She uh, is ceremonially unclean because of the condition that she has. In contrast to Jairus, Jairus is the ruler of the synagogue. The woman is not allowed in the synagogue. They couldn't be any more different. One guy is the, um, the keeper of the clean, and the other girl is unclean, not even allowed to get to the synagogue. Again, she's unnamed in the story. Everything about Jairus in the story up until the very end is going to be public, public, public. Everything about the woman, she's going to want to keep things private, private, private. Couldn't be more different in who they are. Now, how do they approach Jesus? Jairus approaches Jesus like this. Here's what the story tells us. It says, and falling at Jesus' feet. Sounds like the last song that we sang. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. Jairus approaches him publicly with a whole massive group of people around him, and he falls at his feet. I mean, the religious people have not fully yet embraced Jesus. So for Jairus to do this is uh, somewhat rare uh, and, and probably an interesting thing for he, the ruler of the synagogue, to do. When right now, things between the Jews and Jesus, or at least the Jewish leaders and Jesus, aren't real friendly. Jairus falls at his feet. He implores him, or begs, or pleads, or prays, please come. So he approaches him like a religious person would approach. Falling to his feet in humility. The woman approaches differently. The woman, when she approaches Jesus, she realizes there's the big group of people. And so her mindset is, if I can just sneak in and touch the garment of Jesus. This is her big objective in life. If I can just touch the garment of Jesus. Commentators point out that what she was doing there is a really a superstitious type of faith. Like this idea that the power was in his clothing. Like he's a rabbi and he wears that particular um, garment and, and so it must have power. Jesus is going to correct her later. 
So she is going to sneak in privately. Remember, she's unclean. She's unclean. She, she's really not even supposed to be in a crowd of people, and she certainly isn't supposed to be touching a rabbi. Because if she touches rabbi, then he's unclean. You don't want to make Jesus unclean right now because he's very popular. And so you don't want to be the person that makes Jesus have to go through the ceremonial cleaning and not be able to do what he's supposed to be doing. And so she's going to approach privately, even though it's very public, she's going to sneak in with almost a superstitious type of approach to Jesus. Two differences. Who they are and how they approach. There's also two similarities in here. Let's start with why. Why did they approach? Let's look at Jairus first. And falling at Jesus' feet, Jairus implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. I have an only daughter. She's only two. We know many of us can see ourselves in this story. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. Nothing's told of the daughter's life before. We just know that in this moment now, she's close to death. And desperation has driven him to Jesus. Sometimes in church life, uh, we get too intellectual. Uh, we get too uh, maybe systematic in our thoughts on people approaching Jesus. And we think, well, do they really understand? Do they um, have good theology? Uh, do they want to fit into our church the way that we like it? No. Desperation drove this man to Jesus. You know what often drives people to Jesus? Desperation. Not good doctrine. Not a beautiful service. Desperation. Something in their heart that's aching. The woman... Her situation is similar but different. We're told that, I'm just going to read it because it gets, okay. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. Jairus, this religious man, uh, has a desperation because it's something that he loves or someone that he loves uh, is about to be taken from him and that desperation drives him to Jesus. But now you have the woman and Mark, the Gospel of Mark, it tells this story, uh, but it uses a slightly different word to describe what she's going through. And the word plague is used. And what this word means is it's, uh, it's like a, a traumatic experience that occurs, wrecks you, heals, and then comes back again. For 12 years, this has been her experience. Now, in Jairus... Uh, the text seems to indicate that his first response is, I'm going to run to Jesus and see if he can fix this. For the woman, she had run to everything else for 12 years. She had turned to everything. The thing that plagued her, the thing that was wrecking her, the thing that was ruining her, she turned to every physician, every doctor, every attempt at trying to fix it that she could. Some of us have felt this. There's something in us, there's something in our lives, there's something in our, um, in our bodies, there's something in our souls that just feels wrecked, that feels broken. We've attempted to fix it, and we have tried every possible thing that we could find to fix it. We looked at every possible solution. We thought, if I have a lot of money, that'll fix it. Then we thought, if I just don't worry about money, that'll fix it. 
If I go to school, that'll fix it. If I drop out of school, that'll fix it. If I have the best of friends, that'll fix what's wrong. If I just don't have those friends, it'll fix what's wrong. And we search or run to every little thing, temporarily fixing what's wrong, but then the whole problem, the issue comes back. And some of us know what this is to be plagued by something. This thing that just never seems to go away. A hurt, a pain, a mindset, a brokenness that plagues us. Maybe this morning you're desperate enough to finally just bring it to Jesus. That's where this woman was. After 12 years of this, she's so desperate, she's going to risk everything. She's going to risk everything. Now let's tell the story. That's the similarity. The first similarity is desperation brought him to Jesus. But let's see the second similarity. So let me set up the narrative. Jairus asked Jesus to go with him to his house. And Jesus agrees. And so Jesus and Jairus and the 12 disciples and the rest of the gang, they all start walking to Jairus' house. And along the way, the crowds are flocking all around them, pressing in around Jesus. And in that moment, the woman, Sees her chance, and she begins to have that conversation. If I can just touch his garment, if I can just touch his garment, the power will come out, and I'll be healed. And so she uh, maybe weaves her way into the crowd, and she reaches out as Jesus is walking, and she touches the garment. And as she touches the garment, look what happens. She's healed in a moment. And it says, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. Jesus goes, who touched me? Peter says, everybody, <laughs> everybody touched you. It's the disciple equivalent of, yeah, God, somebody touched you. Jesus says, no, 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 Peter. Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. So there stands the woman. After 12 years, healed. Imagine what's going through her head. She wanted to keep something private, and now Jesus is going to make public what she wanted to keep private. Later, Jesus is going to make private what others wanted to make public, reminding us that we don't get to dictate how God does what he does. It's not up to us. He gets to pick his own path. So there she is in front of all these people, and the celebrity Jesus, the rabbi, and says, when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. Why is she trembling? She was trying to stay hidden because she knew that her uncleanness in that day would be perceived, that her uncleanness now would be passed on to someone else. But in that moment, we learn that our uncleanness can't make Jesus dirty. His cleanness can make us clean. So she reaches out to touch Jesus. Power comes out. She's healed immediately. She's terrified of the crowd. Isn't it sad that people who think they're so near to Jesus 
the crowd around him. That those who desperately needed Jesus can be scared of those people. Isn't this a picture? I think it is in this story of church gone bad. Where desperate people would be afraid of all of the other people that claim to be around Jesus. No, the church and Christians, us as individuals, and us corporately must be a place and a people that desperate people feel like they can go to and be around. So this woman, she reaches out, she touches Jesus, she steps out, she explains what's happened, probably waiting for a rebuke or for the crowd to say, how could you? Now he has to leave. And instead Jesus just says this, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Actually, before he says that, he calls her daughter. He calls her daughter. Is it to say to the father who's right there, that's waiting in on this, remember Jairus is right there? Is it to say out to all of them, I'll be the father to the fatherless? I'll worry about the woman that no one else is. So he calls her daughter. He calls her daughter. Says your faith has made you well, going in peace. There, what he's doing is he's correcting her poor theology. He's like, listen, touching my garment didn't make you well. Your faith made you well. Your faith made you well. Now, sometimes in these stories, what you and I want to do is we want to say, okay, all I need to do then is I need to have great faith, and I need to muster up great faith, and I need to produce great faith. Let me tell you something encouraging. It's not about how strong your faith is. It's about how strong the object of your faith is. It's much more important who you're placing your faith in than the the type of faith that you try and muster up. This woman's faith was superstitious. It was bad doctrine and Jesus still healed her because her faith was in the right person. Then there's Jairus. He's not watching this whole thing play out. While he was still speaking, that's Jesus. While Jesus was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. Through the whole narrative, you know what Jairus says? Nothing. Nothing. He doesn't lash out at the woman. He doesn't get angry. He doesn't break down here. Through the whole narrative, Jairus says nothing. It's as if the writer's trying to say, Jairus just kept his eyes on Jesus. Even when things weren't going his way. Even when he think that the, uh, he thought that the downturn or that the, uh, the, the deepening of the problem here was a denial, he just kept his eyes on Jesus. Some of us need to be reminded of that this morning. That when things aren't going the way we want, or they even seem to be getting worse than when we originally went to Jesus, that he's not done working yet. There's still time. So the guy comes up and says, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear. Only believe, and she will be well. In other words, faith will heal her too. And when he came to the house... Jesus allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and the mother of the child. We're going to read here in a second that the weeping women were already there. These were paid people who would come to these types of environments and they would just weep and wail. It was like saying the funeral procession had already begun. 
And so everybody is already ready to bury this girl when Jesus shows up on the scene, reminding me of one of my favorite spiritual principles that we don't call something dead until Jesus does. Amen. So they show up on the scene and they're laughing at him. The naysayers, the, the doubters, the deniers are laughing at Jesus. Why? Knowing that she was dead. The reminder to us that I don't care what people think they know. I care what Jesus can do. And there will always be people who will tell you, no, I know this situation. No, I know what that's going to happen. No, I know that that's over. No, I know this is done. And in those moments, don't listen to what people think they know. Remind yourself what Jesus can do. So this is what Jairus is doing. His faith is now completely on Jesus. He's being laughed at at his daughter's funeral. And they walk into the room. Walk into the room and Jesus looks at her and says, says, taking her by the hand, he called saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned and she got up at once. So we see Two differences. I mean, these are completely different types of people. One's a named powerful man. Another is a unclean, unnamed woman. They approach Jesus. One does religiously. One does superstitiously. We see similarities. And that desperation drove them both to Jesus and that faith made them both well. But this also teaches us two things about Jesus. Two things about Jesus and his process of resurrection, his process of redemption, his process of of transformation. The first thing is this, his impeccable timing. Did you catch in the story? I didn't catch this at first. Somebody else had to point it out to me. Maybe you caught it. The woman had been played for 12 years. The little girl was about 12 years old. Now this is just conjecture, but I have this picture in my head that on the nights Jairus and his wife conceived, that woman woke up and said, well, what is happening to me? And for 12 years, Jairus and his family grew up and became prominent in the community. And according to the story, everything is good until the bottom drops out. And their daughter goes from the beautiful, healthy little girl to she's dying. And at the same time, 12 years prior to that, a woman whose life up to that point was relatively normal. Most commentators believe that she had to be a wealthy woman, otherwise she would not have been able to go to every physician. She had spent her fortune, and her life up until that point was good, and then she woke up one day, and something was going on, and she probably thought, oh, I'm sure it'll be better in a month. I'm sure it'll be better in a year. And then I wonder after two years and three years and five years and seven years and ten years and twelve years, eventually it became uh, to the point where it, she just lived with it. But even though she was living with it, it was destroying her. And some of us in life, we've had the moments where, where everything seemed good. You were gyrus. Your life is clean. You're pretty happy. Things are good. And then all of a sudden, the bottom drops out. And the story here is telling us 
Sometimes you can't even control it. Then you have the other story of the other woman. And some of you relate to this one more. Life isn't so good. It feels like you're living in a plague. And it just keeps hitting you. And it just keeps hitting you. And it just keeps hitting you. And the solution's the same. Desperation drives us to Jesus. And so for 12 years, 12 years, these are like parallel paths, but going the opposite direction. One thing is really good until it gets bad. One thing is really bad. For 12 years, that's happening. Last week, I told the story about Jesus crossing over the sea. And one of the most confusing parts of the story is why Jesus sends the demons into the pigs. You read the story and you go, I don't understand why Jesus would send the demons into the pigs. It doesn't really seem to make that much sense. The demons in that story actually beg Jesus, don't send us into the abyss, send us into the pigs. And you ask yourself, why would Jesus send the demons into the pigs? And why would Jesus even listen to demons? Why would he just do what he wanted to do? Oh, he did. Jesus sends the demons in the pigs and then the pigs run over the side of the cliff and they fall into the water and they drown. And it's the exact reason why the townsmen kick them out. In other words, if Jesus doesn't send the demons into the pigs, then he goes further and further into town there. And he extends his ministry stay on the other side of the lake so that by the time he gets back, Jairus' daughter's already been dead for days. But instead, he sends the demons into the pigs. They kick him out. He gets back in the boat. And right when he lands on the boat, after 12 years of struggling through a plague, a woman is down by the docks and sees that Jesus has landed. And after 12 years of a perfect good life, Jairus' life is falling apart. But Jesus has gotten back on exactly the day that he needs him. You can trust Jesus is timing. He's working when you don't see it. He knows exactly what he's doing. It's impeccable timing. Second thing we see in the story is Jesus' transferable power. In the first story, the girl, the woman said, if I can just touch Jesus' garment. In the second story, the father said, if you can just come and give my daughter a touch. By the way, isn't it also interesting that in one story, the person needed the blood to stop, and in the other story, they needed the blood to start. In his miracles, Jesus can both start things and stop things. When Jesus showed up to the woman and she touched him, power went out of him. It's why he stopped. In other words, in order for the woman to be healed, Jesus weakened himself. In the other story, the girl is dead, and Jesus, by his touch, gives her life. This is an incredible picture of the gospel, friends. It's a beautiful picture that on the cross, Christ went to it, and he took on all that plagued us, all of our dirtiness, all of death. He made himself weak on the cross. Our dirtiness became his dirtiness so that his righteousness could be given to us. The transfer of power. 
See, in every miracle, in every salvation, in every redemption story, it happens because there's a transfer of power. Our sickness for Jesus's righteousness. And there's one final instruction at the end. It's a funny, funny line. It says, many directed that something should be given her to eat. She's probably hungry. She was dead. Feed this girl. Now, I know whenever Reagan is like, you know, tired or something, she wakes up, even as her dad, and I'm less aware than Lindsay, right? What's my first question whenever she wakes up? You want something to eat? You want baba? Baba? Yeah. That's how this conversation goes, right? Like, I never have to be told to give my child something to eat. Right? Like, it's just something that's gone on, which is why I think that this is really more for us than it is for the parent. I think what Jesus is saying in this moment is reminding us because the words that he's saying here are the exact same words that he says, or similar words that he says to Peter after he restores Peter. In other words, he's saying this that after the miracle occurs, you have to feed the miracle. You have to feed it. Jesus can bring something back to life. And he may indeed bring something back to life, but then if we just sit there and stare at it in the bed, it ain't going anywhere. And so feed the miracle for a person when they come across the line of salvation, because what the story is also reminding us is that every single salvation is somebody dead coming to life. And what do you do then when the dead person comes to life? You feed the miracle. When it's a person, you disciple them and you point them to Jesus. When it's a business, you build it. When it's an organization, you lead it. When it's a dream, you declare that there's a new future for it. Jesus can bring it back to life, but then you got to feed it. You need to pour your energy into it. Your parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. And we always say, why, why, why? Here's the good thing. We don't have to know why. Here's the other good thing. We don't live under that anymore. Now, whenever God does something good, we get to tell it. And we get to share it. And we get to proclaim it. And we get to tell everybody that a God with impeccable timing, a God who knows exactly what he's doing, has a miracle to offer salvation to give. Thanks for watching this video. If you want to learn more about our church, go ahead and click the link in the description or head on over to experienceredemption.com. Have a great week, guys.